Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Scott David Chase. This is my truth. Tell me yours. Uh, on this episode, I spoke with Michael Venn. Uh, it's the return of Michael Venn. Uh, Michael was the very first guest on this podcast, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, give or take a couple months. I uh, hadn't figured out the exact time, but uh, trying to get Mike back on for a while. Uh, not for lack of interest on his part. He's just a very, very busy guy. So we uh, eked out some time this morning in uh, Cafe Killam in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, I've recorded one other podcast there, and uh, you know they have it's a it's a Turkish uh, cafe, and they have you know Turkish music playing in the background. So that's certainly the case this time as well. Hopefully, you can hear us uh, okay. Um, this podcast, uh, like every other episode this season is brought to you by wearedepertized.com they have a wide array of different styles and fabrics for neckties if you go to wearedepertized.com purchase some ties and then put in promo code truth you will get uh, free shipping in the continental united states so uh, we thank them for that and uh yeah this chat with uh michael um it's a lot of fun. We we talked about sort of the the life cycle of the last eighteen months of his film, The Heroin Effect, and you know some some projects that he's got in the works, and you know just talked about music a lot too, and uh, yeah, kind of catching up. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Had a great time. Always have a great time talking to Michael. So hopefully you enjoy this chat as well with filmmaker Michael Venn. Starting off bad radio because we're both going to be drinking and eating. Absolutely. And there's music playing in the background. Uh, yeah. Um, are you recording already? Oh, yeah. Of course we are. Yeah. You do what I do. Yeah. It's wonderful being a filmmaker and like setting up, and then you're like, yeah, you just kind of start recording and get everybody comfortable. And right. And then, like, when are we going to start recording it? Like, oh, 10 minutes ago. Oh, I shot something that literally we shot for like 30 minutes, and, and it was with a, a mother and son. And got done, and uh, you know, they're you know, like in my mind, I was like, okay, we're done, cool. And they were like, okay, so when we when we start recording, like, just let me know and remind me not to say whatever. And I was like, no, we're done. I already did. They're like, oh my god. I'm like, you guys were both super nervous. And why? I um, like the first, the first probably 15 of these. I didn't tell people. I just started recording. But then I was worried. I was like, well, that's kind of not fair because especially if someone like talks about something sensitive and it depending on the, I mean, cause you know, most of the people that I know who I talk to on this, you know, I have some sort of relationship with, and I know, you know, to varying degrees, different amounts about their personal life. And I'll know if they're talking about something that they maybe don't want the rest of the world to talk to, to, to know. Right. But now I was just like, because and I didn't do it to try and do like a, a gotcha type of thing, but it was more just people are more comfortable when they don't realize they're being recorded. Oh yeah, absolutely, and they're authentic, and yeah. you're not getting you're not getting a, a fake version of their truth. You know what I mean? Like you're you're absolutely like I think when you when 
like this. Like, mm-hmm. I knew this was going to happen. You've got a recording device. Right. So at some point, I know you're going to be recording me. So there's that part. Right. You know, you set up a camera. You sit there and hang out and talk, and, and you're filming somebody for whatever. Yeah. You know, there's an understanding that there is some form of recording happening. Yeah. Just when or, you know, I always like the not to make a big deal about it. I did, um, do you know Chris Dempsey? Yeah. I did, he, I did a shoot with him maybe three weeks ago and I was trying to like mind trick myself because like <laughs> I get very self-conscious having my photo taken. Uh, I think most people do to some degree. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's just one of those things that like, so I was trying to just have as much conversation as possible while we were doing it and I figured he would snap some pictures while we were doing it. Um, they, you know, he got some, but a couple times he was like, all right, can you stop and turn this way? And I'd be like, oh shit, he's taking my picture and then I'm like, uh, Yeah, but those pictures were great. Yeah, like the yeah. ones that I saw, I, yeah, I think yeah. I saw like three or four of them in totally I, different locations and I was he, like, I think you said he took like 400 pictures. Oh, yeah. Something like that. So, I mean, and that's part of the the luxury of shooting digitally, too. Because, you know, when I, because, so most of my paintings that I do, which is funny, because I actually had a friend who's, I've been talking about getting on this podcast for a while, but uh, she walked up to me at Trader Joe's last night. She's like, be on a podcast soon, and I want you to pay me like one of your French girls. I was like, Sure, absolutely, <laughs> but it's, so most of the, like, um, you know, like, any of the nude studies that I do, I take my own reference photos, and, but I'll shoot, I shoot both digitally and on film. Oh, wow. But I'm also not, like, I'm not doing anything with, the, like, I'm not presenting the photos themselves, I'm using them slowly as reference, Right. so I can sort of do kind of extreme stuff with lighting that because there's been a couple times where like can I see the pictures and I'm like you absolutely can and I was like but there you, know, you might not be happy with them because I wasn't shooting them to make a piece of art in and of itself I'm like they're raw materials yeah so I'm like some of them might not be flattering to you I'm like but trust me you know well I think anytime you're going to do anything you know like a new study mm-hmm. there's a, definitely the the aspect of trust there's also the fact that you're doing reference photos so that you know it's going to be different it's not going to be you know I am and obviously when you're painting somebody in you know that capacity like you're obviously going to make the most flattering photo realistic or the most flattering portrait nude you know then versus like hey let me make you look like crap right (laughs) well it's interesting because I'll also see like a lot of times I'll have people do sort of non-traditional poses they're not like glamour poses and I also use a lot of shadow Mm -hmm. um and it'll end up I'll end up seeing stuff in the human body that I haven't seen sort of highlighted uh before because you know you know, glamour photography certainly has its place, but it's all—it's a lot of the same stuff. It's yeah, it's a lot of the same angles. It's a lot of the same, you know, lighting. It's a lot of the same shadows. It's just a lot of the same. You know, it's—it's it's not capturing those like I don't know, less. I don't want to say less glamorous, but the uh, the more natural, real, unposed, unrehearsed. Right. And I also just kind of like. 
for lack of a better term, shining a light on sort of poses, like things that the body can do when you contort it in a way that the body's not often presented artistic with, and you're like, oh, right. Um, and it's funny because I've had, you know, a few people comment about that I usually only paint like, really thin women, and I was just like, well, I mean, part of that's just sort of what I'm presented with, because most of the people that I know who are interested in having me paint them tend to be athletic to thin women, uh, but also when I have people do these sort of bizarre poses sometimes, um, you can see with the, with the, the bone structure and the muscle tissue is doing underneath the skin more mm -hmm. than with you know with a heavier person um, right. but I've also said I was like if I had someone who's heavier who approached me and be like oh, I want you to pay me I'd absolutely do it it's just you know yeah and I too I think too when you're doing stuff like that it you know the people that are more comfortable in allowing that tend to be more athletic more in shape thinner right. more in the eyes of what is considered you know beautiful you know, in our society which which it's difficult too because I think if more people like myself and also photographers photographed other shapes of women, it could have an effect on what is considered more beautiful. You know, and I think it, it is. It, it already has. Yeah. I mean, I think that you know we went from you know whatever the '90s when the the uh, the heroin chic and ultra thin like coat hanger looking you know models and stuff like that that uh, you know and now you've got all these athletic you know women men that are you know it's kind of like what, what is it ESPN or Sports Illustrated does like the body issue and it's all uh, like athletes yeah. and stuff like that so I don't know I think you're kind of obviously you're not getting the average person in those situations but you're celebrating an athletic body right well and at the end of the day, you know, as an artist, you're, or at least I'm presenting stuff that isn't captures my attention and, and sort of reflecting that back. And you know, those, you know, I, I I paint people that capture my attention. So that's. Prior to that. Yeah, <laughs> and you do it well. <laughs> well thanks. Um, Unless it's one of me, and then I have to be totally like, just you can burn that now. <laughs> right. Well, it's because all so, so people have seen the portraits I've done of Michael. Uh, that I had to use my imagination with that because he's wearing clothes in the portraits, but he was nude when he posed. Who me? Oh yeah. yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just I do all of my portraitures <laughs> nude. nude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this is so sorry you were you were the first guest on this podcast uh, a year and a half ago I, I should, probably should have looked at the date beforehand but it doesn't really matter um, it feels like a year and a half ago because you were at the I, I can't remember if I had already seen um the heroin effect at that point, or I know you no, had sent you me. Hadn't seen you had sent me. I don't think you heard. Uh, had seen it yet. No, I think it was like just on the cusp of seeing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you were at the not the beginning process of the movie, but the beginning process of presenting it to an audience at that point. Yes. Um, and then the weird thing that happened then is that we did a little. Uh, I get somebody smoking in the background. I like the reality of you know. Recording in a cafeteria, Recording, you know, in a cafe, you know, fairly, a Turkish fairly cafe. Turkish cafe. Absolutely. 
Because um, then, you know, people listening might be like, they went to Turkey for this. We're like, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that, because there's a lot of stuff on the walls in both rooms here, mm-hmm. probably the thing that interests me the most in here, they have a commemorative LBJ plate, which is the only U.S. president up there. I'm like... I get if you have the whole set. I, the, yes. I'm like, what's the choice behind LBJ? I don't know. He uh, wouldn't have been my choice. Right. But, you know, hey, you never know. You never know. But, uh, no, when we recorded, and I always think the funny thing is, so before you'd seen the film and before we kind of did it, that uh, the first screening at the music hall, it was... Where we did our, our bathroom we, we interview. We did the bathroom post, interview, which is still interview. my favorite interview to have done because mm-hmm. uh, it's an awesome bathroom. And... Uh, that was fun, but like it's it was it's a completely different movie since then because mm-hmm. a lot of stuff happened with some of the people in the film, and I was like, well, I can't I can't stop now when really important stuff has happened with you know two main people in the film, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh, and then you find reasons to like add somebody else because you know, so you know, I think I, yeah, cut out some stuff that was originally in there and, and yeah. added some other stuff in, and all I think benefited the film but it kind of it was funny to think like you're done with film and you're like nope it's never really done right. yeah I was I was wondering about that being that it's a documentary film because you know George Lucas notwithstanding most filmmakers of narrative films when they're done with it for better or for worse they're done with it they're, they're done telling a story whereas you do a documentary it's with living breathing people um, you know how like how much are you compelled to to tweak and adjust but I'm sure you know it kind of yeah I mean you can go forever I mean that's kind of the weird thing about doing the documentary in real time so to speak or in you know with people as things are going on I mean you don't know where it's going to end yeah. you know you don't know how it's going to end you go okay I've shot all this stuff how do I want to end it and, you know whose storyline is going to make it in and so there's like probably 40 people that you know that, that were filmed that never made it in the film you don't see at all all of them had super compelling stories and and um, I learned a lot from, or it steered me in the direction to, to kind of go with the people that ended up in the film. But it's it's you know there's so much on the cutting room floor, and then you go and I mean I suppose at this point I can give a little bit of away you know when when people that you totally lost track of who were in the film who had who were super compelling and you go you know all of a sudden they resurface again and you get to tell the rest of their story and um, the other thing is you know when when somebody passes away who's in the, in the story and it's it's a, it's a it's a reason to go okay I'm gonna reach out to that person's family and I'm gonna you know include that because it's you know important for that storyline and that story arc and you know I mean I'm sure I could you know continue down the road of like all that stuff but at some point you go I I have to stop and I have to get this out there and so there was like a nine month to a year gap as far as like when I thought I was done and then all of a sudden like now I get to be done again right which you know delayed some things but made it a better film I hope sure did you ever see the final I haven't seen the final one uh but it is available on iTunes. It is. Yeah. iTunes and Google Play and Amazon. Um, and that was one of the things that I, I legitimately wanted to ask you about in real life, but since I've been, like, you know, pestering for the last couple of months to, <laughs> to, to, to revisit, uh, I was like, I'll wait till I'm there. Uh, do you have any plans to release it physically? Not Which, yet. Yeah. But, ironically, I had an idea about doing something like that 
the other night, but it would almost be some kind of bundle that contained a lot of stuff that's not, whether it was interviews, you know, similar to this that I'd done or podcast stuff or, you know, some other things that packaged along with it make it more interesting right. for blooper reel. A blooper reel. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, every documentary about Harold. opioid addiction needs a blooper reel. Believe it or not, I mean, I don't know, there's definitely some blooper reel stuff, mostly just me being clumsy. Oh no! I I, mean, I, believe, it, I believe it, and uh, not so much the, the clumsy part. Just I mean, because you know, I spent you know over the last year I've recommended the film to a lot of people. And I'm like, if you get the chance to see it, you need to see it. But I'm also explaining, I'm like, yes, it is about heroin addiction, but it's ultimately it's not a gloomy film. I mean, it's a. I mean, I mean, yeah. There's 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 hope in it. That was the thing is like I remember you know editing the film in, in the freaking you know so many different edits and where you get into the minutia and you can't get out of your own head for a while but you know going getting to a point where I was like I, I can't let this film end on somebody's death like I can't let this end on this there is no hope kind of thing and I need to have it have some kind of hope at the end and just finding the way to tile all that in and I mean I remember struggling with you know the fact that you know the movie starts with a Trump quote mm-hmm. and which bothers the hell out of me but I had a really good filmmaker friend of mine in LA who just said listen he goes you know because at one point you know Russell Brand and Oprah Winfrey are in the film and they're no longer in the film anymore and he goes get rid of that stuff he goes focus on because it takes you out of the film and you go oh I know who that is whereas you know now you're like okay these are characters who you're getting to know and it's an intimate storyline or whatever and you start with this uh, you know derogatory quote about New Hampshire and you know, drug-infested den and all that stuff, and you hear Trump's voice, and thankfully that's all that's that's in it of him. But you know, then you know later on, you've got uh, Hillary Clinton's in it, and, and Obama's in it in, in in various capacities that are used as kind of segues, I think, more than than they're in it. You know, but it has a political bend to it, I think, a little bit. But when you when you start a film and you kind of you're almost like trashing this whole thing, and then hopefully you get out of this and you go, okay, well, there's a way. There's hope we got to figure something out and then uh, I don't know it's a, it was a, it was a weird process to go through and I you know I, I, I think that going through it made me a little bit more I don't know understanding of why we're at where we're at as far as this and also the sad fact that unless there's some drastic social change that happens which you know things are starting to change but you know it's like you know there's still going to be those people that comment and that are like oh it's just another overdose it's just a, some junkie on the street and then all of a sudden you realize oh yeah well that was your kid's kindergarten teacher right as your neighbor and their daughter and you keep hearing stories and the weird thing for me which I wrote about in a blog post that's coming up um, I think it, when we first did this I think I told you the story about I ran into a friend of mine who kind of blew my mind with yeah. his story of his addiction and I was like dude you're not the guy that you think of when you're at when, you know and sadly you know that was four years ago when I got the idea to do the film and he passed away you know literally two weeks ago from two blocks from where we're sitting right now oh man sorry to hear that yeah and so it's and uh you know it kind of came full circle like you know how much has changed since then I mean you know I think about it you know we keep losing people you know Mac Miller recently you know we almost lost Demi Lovato you know what I mean like yeah. it's, it's a real thing that affects everybody but in everybody's mind I think most people go oh 
you know, that's them. Yeah, it's dirty people scurrying in, in shadows and back alleys. No, no, it's professionals. And it's, you know, I mean, I, I lost two friends in the last year, and neither, you know, friends, like people that I, you know, and actually, no, I'm sorry, three. And, uh, and all of them are people that... You know, I don't think anybody would look at and go, "Oh, that you know, one was a lawyer, one was, you know, a professional. The other, you know, other one, well, you know, I did a documentary film about him and didn't think that, you know, whatever that was, six, seven years ago, that we'd lose him now. You know, and it's sad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the films that you've worked on, is this the one that you? I don't want to use the word tinker because it has sort of a, sort of a condescending. Is this the one that you worked on the most after you thought it was done? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and I think I learned something very much about doing documentary film is that you almost, you know, I think you're never done, which is a weird thing unless you're doing a retrospective, you know, kind of documentary you know Ken Burns the Civil War that's, there's no continuing yeah, storyline yeah, there's that. not new Civil War stuff happening no and that's you know so I think that you know within this it's kind of weird you know now that it's out for mass consumption and getting feedback and getting on you know I, I, you know, right now um, my biggest dream is my I'm obsessed with the uh, Armchair Expert podcast that, that Dax Shepard does mm-hmm. I don't know if you've listened to it but for whatever reason no, I think you've recommended it to me though I, I love it I, it's entertaining it's cool but he has really interesting guests and um, unbeknownst to me or whatever but he had Dr. Drew on um, like several several episodes ago and they at one point they get into this whole deep conversation about the opioid crisis and addiction and this thing and that thing and Dax Shepard's in recovery and, you know and it's, you know, it's Dr. Drew I mean from Loveline with Adam right. Carolla yeah. you know way back in the day Sober House yeah know, all that stuff. stuff and so which I found I was just like you know you start thinking about ways to promote a film and you go oh man and so I did that thing where I was like man I'm on Twitter like they're on Twitter I'm just gonna tweet you know and at one point you know through that you know Dax Shepard liked my tweet you know yeah, tagged yeah, me but I was that. like oh my god for me I was like <gasps> you know and I became a 14 year old schoolgirl. like oh my right. god Dax Shepard like and uh no offense to 14 year old school girls out there I'm just a frame of reference but um but but you know but that led to somebody else who you know I follow and we follow each other on Twitter was like you know hey you know she commented on it she was like and then she sent you know she probably messaged me she's like hey do you want to you know I through what I do she's also a doctor um she was like you know I have access to his PR agent would you like me to introduce you guys and I did and she's like yeah we're gonna talk on Monday so a couple days I'm gonna talk to his PR agent and hopefully I can get the film to Dr. Drew and hopefully he'll look at it in a way and go hey man this is something different this tells a different story you know there's the part of me that goes yeah I want him to do that because it gets the film out to more people and hopefully it changes something or, or helps spark some new change and you know the weird thing for me in it all and I you know this blog post that I wrote recently you know I start the whole thing off and I'm like you know I'm not in recovery I'm not somebody that struggled with addiction I'm not you know and to right. be in my shoes you know you're almost like a reporter you know you're just like yeah I'm gonna report on this news story but, but I think uh, I think that's just as important um, I know for me, like, I remember, you know, when Christopher Reeve became paralyzed. Me too. And after that, you know, he became an advocate for, you know, uh, people that were in wheelchairs. And the cynical part of me was like, 
Well, of course, he's concerned about this because it, it relates to him. And, uh, you know, there's several professional athletes that started charities for kids with autism because they have a child with... And not taking anything away from it, not saying that that's not a genuine concern, and that I absolutely believe their heart is in it, but they have something personally invested in it, it affects their life. And again, not to say that it doesn't affect your life, because obviously, you know, you've lost friends, I have too, um, but when someone who... When, when someone shines a light on a cause that is important and it doesn't affect their day-to-day life, to me, it almost, for a cynical like me, it sort of makes me pay even more attention to it. I'm like, this is important enough that someone who it's not affecting their day-to-day life says, hey, no, pay attention to this. Um, I think it's important to have the people that aren't affected day-to-day bringing up the issue as well, not just, well, I lost a son, I lost a brother, I lost whatever. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I mean, 100%. Like, I think... You know, like we just said, Michael J. Fox, Parkinson's disease. Now we've got Parkinson's research. And I think there needs to be that in that social change aspect. I think when somebody like myself who's like, well, listen, I mean, I don't struggle with addiction. I don't have any, you know, yeah, I've lost friends. But I think everybody in this room probably say, yeah, I probably know somebody, you know, know, we've lost or is struggling with or is no longer... You know, um, you know. Sadly, because of this opioid epidemic, I, I think that because I don't have that, I'd almost, you know, I think it makes people go, "Oh, wait a minute," you know. But then I can also flip it and say, "Well, yeah, I mean, in a way, I do have somebody, somebody because I look at it in the sense that this is going to impact future generations. We're already kind of losing a generation right now, right, because of it. And you know, I have a son who, when I started the process, was ten years old. He's fourteen now, and I was selfish in the sense that I was like, this. This is a something that you know obviously going to affect him as he gets older, and I want him to be well armed with knowledge in that sense. You know what I mean? To be able to talk about it. So what the greatest thing for me, if nothing else, on a personal level that comes out of this is that I get to talk to my son really openly about drugs and alcohol, right? And he can see firsthand. You know, right? So I mean, so there's my selfish personal implication, and as far as just maybe education and. Sure. and, and and putting it out there for, for others to kind of, you know, address. And I mean, you know, I always think it's funny when people talk, you know, that are like, oh, you know, should I bring my kid to see your film? I'm like, why wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, but well, he's, you know, he's 12. But like, yeah, that's, you need to have that conversation when he was 10. Right. You know, or she was 10, you know, because that's, you know, everybody, you know, everybody that I ended up filming, whether or not they're in the movie or not, there's a, some, some similar story that, well, I was 13 years old and I smoked weed for the first time. Right. I, you know, try drinking for the first time, or I had my first cigarette, or I, you know what I mean? And then it, you know, so if you're kind of addressing those things, and yeah, but I don't think, I think most parents are like, oh, well, I'll wait till they're in high school. And it's like, well, that's way too late. Yeah, they're not really thinking about drugs. <laughs> well, they're already hearing about it. Yeah, yeah just not from just you yet. So not you from necessarily the most informed, you know, person to be talking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, um, have you like have you started thinking about the next project I mean I know you've always got ideas uh-huh. it's usually several ideas um, 
maybe not have you started thinking about it because uh, I already know the answer to that. But uh, like, are you good at multitasking as far as like working on this project, but also be getting something else? Or do you have to wait? Like, are you waiting for the the, the heroin effect cycle to come to its conclusion before you can begin the next thing? Um, no, I think I'm gonna have to begin the next thing and mm-hmm. promote this one and everything like that which is is kind of a good thing because I recently um, started my own business very very recently in the sense that I started something called Ben Creative Media okay. to do creative content for people for social media or you know whether it's that kind of stuff I'm like hey you know your business needs social media advertising posts that you can do so little you know two four minute videos that are like highlighting uh, your business or you know whatever and the idea behind that was to be able to say there's a market for that and there's a lot of people that are wasting advertising dollars you know and like oh I spent 10 grand on this commercial and it aired on you know nobody really watches it whether they're investing all this money it's like well you can target your audience on Facebook and Instagram or however you want to do it but you've got this thing that's going to kind of live on the internet now forever not just in this 30 second block on a TV commercial or you know whatever so it allows people to kind of promote their their business and kind of really explain it and make it a personal connection and so kind of started that in within the framework of that there's another project that hopefully is going to um come to fruition which we'll talk about the next time but it would be another documentary that would be a bigger appeal that they hired me on to do which is cool and then there's always the joke in my head that's like I need to just do a horror film because that's just fun right you know that that or you know whatever the thing is and I did a music video a little while ago for Step 13 which is just yeah I mean if somebody would pay me to just do music videos all the time I'd be super happy right. just because it's fun and I love music and nice <laughs> I, I parked further down the street and there's a stop sign at the end of the street with a step 13 sticker on it yeah. those guys are awesome yeah and I love their story because it's all guys you know from you know old school punk bands that, you know like the Bruisers and stuff like that and then you know Richie and everything and uh, and I love the fact that now in their 40s they're becoming more I don't know well known right. for the music they're doing now and and, and uh and I, I don't know I just admire that I'm like yeah. oh right on dude you're like you guys stuck with it you're still playing like I, I look at it I'm like yeah I don't really play anymore right. I stopped being a drummer and started playing guitar yeah. sad <laughs> it is what it is I mean it's, it's you know you and I have talked before about the fact that like there's only so much time in the day there's only so much fuel in the tank to do creative stuff I mean you're also you're you're a dad you're you know you're a single dad uh, I mean you know I don't have first hand knowledge of that but my, my my younger brother's also a single dad you know his his kid's eight years younger than yours but I know how much time that you know it, you know yeah and I mean and I will say you know so it goes down that creative path so I you know you say oh you did a documentary documentary film and it you know for a weird reason because you're a single dad you look at this opportunity and you look at something and like okay there's a reason for that you know and, and uh, you know I don't play music like I used to and I play guitar on my couch which I started doing when you're a single dad and you've got a baby and it's right. not like you're going to put him to bed at 8 o'clock and go out and gig you're not going to be like oh I'm going to the knitting factory tonight to go you know I'm going to drive to New York City play the knit turn around drive back on 495 watch the sunrise right. you know and, uh, and I'll be here for your morning bottle you know that's not going to happen so you know you look at that and you kind of give up certain things but I mean jokingly I said this to somebody a couple years ago and realistically they kind of said that's a really good idea you should do it it was like I need to write the single dad's cookbook because I cook for my kid fairly fairly healthy food and I mean he's Mr. Athlete these days so it's all about you know 
baseball, basketball, and soccer. And uh, and he's uh, you know, but he's you know, he's already taller than me, stronger than me, right. smarter than me, better looking, and, and you know, uh, it's it's version two point now. Right. He's, <laughs> he's by far, but it's that thing where you're like, oh, you know, you, know, you are what you eat. And I grew up right. with that, and, you know, so writing that down and I started the process and a friend of mine who's got uh, her son and her daughter-in-law are both published authors and I told her the idea she's like you should totally do that and uh, like alright cool so that's kind of like the next little multitasking adventure of like yeah okay cool I've got the name of an agent I need to write a proposal and submit it to them and then like writing a script like you sit down you're like and here it is and then you can't get it all out at once so I'm like I'm like I need to write a 15 page proposal yeah I've got four pages and have for about two months five recipes that I know I want to throw in there it's just really funny I'm like huh damn it writing a book is a little tougher than I thought but it's also like switching gears to a different creative mode can be tough as well it's I mean it's funny I um, I've gotten more questions about doing stand up since I stopped doing it and have been painting you're like oh I, you know I mean I don't do stand up anymore I was like well I mean and the Jada part of me is like nobody ever came when I did shows around here because um, but also I was like you know I'm focusing on painting and it's not like I I mean part of it was I made a lot of changes in my own personal life at that point and became a much happier person and um, most of my comedy was fairly sarcastic dark stuff and I was like oh that's not really who I am in my day to day life most of the time now and I don't really like tapping into like like my default setting is to be sarcastic and cynical and kind of an asshole and I've worked really hard in the last five years at being less of that like that's still I mean, I'm just going to throw this out I've known you for a long time and at no point was I ever like oh, that's an asshole <laughs> <laughs> like you've always been like nice happy I can certainly dude. find some people that would that would argue that point with you but I appreciate it yeah, yeah, I mean my own personal experience sure. is all I have to go by so but I also looked at it I was like okay can you know would I just be playing a role if I continued to do that uh, do it stand up now but it's also it's funny because I with my other podcast the news of our demise every two weeks I have a little steam valve where for two hours because we do two episodes back to back where that whole itch is scratched and, then, and sometimes it scares me how easily it is to just it's not even sliding into it it just happens like that uh, because my, Gary my co-host um, has you know known me for a long time too we used to work together at Best Buy and he has a very similar sense of humor as far as that goes um, I slip back into it but I also find myself like being the sort of the um, social, social justice warrior voice sometimes um, not even like I mean because it's an offensive podcast by its very nature but because uh, I had a real crisis of faith when we started doing it I was like am I doing something that is fundamentally against what I really believe in and then I went back and listened to the first like five episodes we did I'm like no I'm not I was just like you know and some people might who only know me from painting or something like that might hear this and be shocked by it originally but that's okay they don't have to listen or whatever and I was like and I don't say anything that 
I don't actually believe it. You know, the way I present it might be a little coarser than I present it in some ways, but you know, I mean, you know, that's that's life. Kind of, yeah, it's the nature. I think it's funny that you said like, you know, you're a social justice warrior. I think it's funny like every once in a while I'm like, it'd be so easy for lots of things to change in this country, in this world, if people just stopped being so like polarizing and, and at some point just kind of step back and said, okay, like, let's be honest, what's better for the vast majority of people? You know what I mean? And, right. and kind of looked at it that way versus like, oh, that person's this and I'm that and therefore we can't. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, I use that word, that term kind of with quotes in the air the same way that, you know, the, the term snowflake is flown around because it's, it's just a thrown away. It's, okay, the person who's talking, the person who they're listening to a quote like, okay, this person's opinion doesn't matter at all because there was quote-unquote snowflake. Right. You know, which... Just like whatever. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, the the whole political mindset of where we're at as a country is just it was so polarizing and it's so off-putting to me. And I'm like, man, like, you know, I, I don't want to sound like Rodney King and be like, can we all just get along? Right. But you know, at some point, can't we? And then and then I also you know think about it and I'm like, man, like, I don't know, like we would be. Here's a very weird example, and I will bring. It because I think this, without getting into some huge political debate, right. offend somebody who might listen to this and say, "Oh, he's a snowflake, or he's a social justice warrior, or whatever." Um, I think, I think I had said this to somebody, and then they pointed out that um, Ronald Reagan basically said the same thing 30 years ago, which made me laugh. But uh, in front of like I don't know some big UN thing, but I, I had once said, you know, listen, you know, what if what if like some alien race came down and they were like, "All right, we're just going to take out the human race." Pretty soon, everybody would be like, "I don't care if you're black." white, brown, purple, yellow, green, atheist, you know, Jewish, Buddhist, Christian, whatever. We're all going to unite together to save ourselves, right? And somebody pointed out that Ronald Reagan basically said that 30-some-odd years ago, like, hey, maybe we all need to look at ourselves as humans and not as all these differing things. And I was just like, you know, we'd be probably better off if we did that. Yeah, I mean, and it's one of the things that I, I, I tell people all the time is I was like, you pick any single person on the street or whatever and I guarantee you if you take the time you're going to find ten times as many things that you have in common with that person that you have things that divide your lives so many people focus on our differences and that's and it's easy to say oh I don't like this person because I don't like this person because of this yeah it, it, it's actually kind of sad it's almost like we look for that thing that we can hate somebody for, about versus like I mean you know think about it you go I don't care if somebody is a Trump supporter or a Trump basher what if they're like a really cool single dad who's got a great taste in music and, and, and an awesome artist and you know all of a sudden I've got a lot more in common with that guy you know, at any point, or you know, you have people that that are uh, you know, uh, just. It's funny to just think about like all of those things. Like, oh, man, you know what? Like, I mean, I always think it's funny when old white men start arguing about abortion. I'm like, let's be honest, folks. Unless that's your kid, unless that's your sperm, and your egg, your right. I mean, shut up. Right. <laughs> well, it's one of those things too that like, and, and Bill Maher recently made this point, and I'm not a, I'm not a huge Bill Maher. Fan. Like, I, I agree with almost everything that he says. I just, I, I think personally, he's, he's kind of an asshole. Um, uh, I think he can be funny sometimes, but uh, uh, his point was, you know, 
25 years ago, it was considered rude to bring up politics or religion in public conversation. He's like, we need to go back to that. He's like, I'm not saying we don't have issues we don't need to address. He's like, but everyone talks about politics all the time now. And he's like, like, no one's ever changing someone's mind, you know, politically by having these, you know, these social media uh, discourses. It's never been that moment on social media where I looked at that and was like, oh my God, they're so right. I have totally flipped my side of, you know, my social political beliefs. It's also, I mean, and going back to... The, why you know I named this podcast this is my truth tell me yours because I love the one on one conversation but I also it's funny I had um, a, a friend a couple of years ago on Facebook where she said something that was different than I you know I had posted something and then she responded and it was totally contrary and I said you know what uh, I actually you're right and I'm sorry I felt that way and then she messaged me privately and she's just like you don't need to apologize to me never apologize for your beliefs and never back down from what you believe in and I'm like but that's that's how we learn and grow I was like it's good yeah. to have convictions but you also need to be fluid enough to take in outside data and then decide yeah. oh the way I looked at this is wrong or no I don't agree with how you look at it but be open to the idea of other ideas and that other ideas may be better than your idea uh, you know yeah no absolutely because uh, you know, there was a you know Nazis stood by their beliefs wholeheartedly. You know that doesn't you know white supremacists do that. You know it's just but it's I mean the other side of it too because I've had um, you know great people I know who are uh, you know very active in feminist movement who will sometimes get so caught up in the rhetoric of a conversation that you're losing the whole point of what they're what they're trying to say um, you know I, I had someone a couple years ago unfriend me because I used the, the word guys in a general I was like hey guys uh, you know some just like you know it's 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 part of patriarchy and I'm just like and I'm I totally get that our language has, you know, been male-centric for forever. Yeah. And, and you know, you and I being, you know, white males in, uh, you know, New Hampshire yeah. don't really have a leg to stand on in this argument. And I, I kind of respect that, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm taking the time to listen to your point. Uh, yeah. But there's going to be plenty of people whose minds you could change about the point you're really trying to make if you maybe didn't fight this battle. Well, it's kind of a, yeah, it's the minutia of the battle versus like, hey, let's just talk on a a larger scale. Right. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, to tie it into the, well, first of all, you know, you talk about, you know, what you just said and the word history derives from his story right Right. there. You don't have, you know what I mean? Um, But then you think about, you know, one of the things within the the whole, um, opiate you know crisis that we're dealing with and you've got a lot of people who are in recovery and they talk about it you know instead of saying using the word junkie and instead of using the word you know addict you know you should say person struggling with an addiction or you know stuff like that and so it's like in changing the, the way things are talked about which absolutely helps and it's ab- absolutely kind of sensitive um, in a lot of ways and, and, and it makes sense to do that because it helps change um, 
perception of things. It kind of it makes For you sure. go, like, let me think about what it is that I'm saying. And it's really funny. So I wrote this blog post and I actually um, purposely wrote in the very beginning in, in, in because it's how people speak and it wasn't necessarily how I would normally say things but I wrote you know I'm not in recovery I'm not an addict I'm not and then throughout the whole thing it kind of gets to the point where it's like you know I'd start referring to people as you know people struggling with an addiction and whatever because it's kind of I don't want to say eye-catching or but if you start off and you're already kind of in that language that people are not used to I want people to actually read right. <laughs> you know what I mean and right. so you know if it, you, you start out and you use those words that are you, you know and I don't think the word addict or alcoholic or you know whatever is going to go away but I think that if you can get somebody to read something based on using those terms and then also throughout the course of the thing that's been written kind of introduce them to another way of talking about it or looking at it or thinking about it because you know as soon as you put it into the perception of somebody going yeah that's my you know that's my cousin who's struggling with his heroin addiction mm-hmm. you know and, and he became an addict based off the fact that you know he, he had you know knee surgery and his doctor prescribed him something you know what I mean and all of a sudden they've got a personal connection to it just like you know I'm sure there's people out there that struggle with the idea of or were people or maybe still are but people struggle with you know uh, gay lesbian bisexual transgender stuff until all of a sudden they meet somebody who they know and they've known their whole life you're like oh my god they're gay or they're transitioning or whatever and then it goes oh but well you know hey Steve was a good dude I mean what? So, right. so what if he's gay now or whatever you know Sally kind of thing um, and I think that there's there's something to be said about that so as soon as you have something to relate to on a personal level sure I think that's that one on one thing that you know helps change perceptions I mean you think about the amount of politicians right now and you hear about them that they're losing kids to opiates right. it's like all of a sudden those guys are now you know hi I'm a successful politician politician in this great state of whatever and I lost my kid to this and now all of a sudden I'm taking this up because it's personal to me and I hope it becomes personal to you because we need to like look at things differently and you can look at it the same way as you know interracial relationships you know all of a sudden you know I know somebody who you know they're in an internet or interracial relationship and because of that I think both of their families if they get opens up people's minds and go sure you know what was it Lin-Manuel said you know love is love is love is love is love and I think there's something to be said about that oh yeah you know I mean, in this day and age, if you find somebody and you fall in love and, and you can see yourself with like a happy, happily ever after, I don't care. Good for you, man. Yeah. I, you know, that's that's a blessing. Yeah, it's so hard to connect with another human for any long period of time. That, yeah. It's, yeah, if you can find someone. Yeah. It's none of my business what right. you do in your own bedroom. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and I, and I think that there's, it's people that are like, oh, that is my business. It's not, you know, it's not adhering to my religious beliefs or my personal beliefs. Who cares? That's your thing. Go deal with your own. <laughs> yeah, and anyone. I hope we've lost a couple of listeners by now. <laughs> you know, at some point they're like, what are they talking about? What are they talking about? Well, it's interesting, the whole gay lesbian thing, because I remember, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at how much the climate has changed just in my lifetime because I remember when I was in junior high and high school, the, you know, the fear that guys had that someone was going to think they were gay. That was like one of the be all end all, like worse. And like, like for the most part, from my understanding, like teenagers don't even tease them, tease each other about that anymore. Which, no, it's, which not is, a, it's not a thing. Like, who, like who cares? But I remember like. 
when I found out, or it wasn't even found out because, you know, I come from a a fairly religious uh, Christian family. You know, my father was a pastor and... uh, uh, but my aunt, my my dad's sister, is a lesbian and had been for a while, but it was never talked about in my family. And me and my older brother kind of, like, figured it out on our own around, like, 13 or 14. And we're like, wait, is, is she? Wait, can't because we're like, that's weird. that I'm like, her and her roommate must be really good friends where they've moved across the country together, like, three or four times. And like, wait a minute. And then so we finally asked our parents and they're like, Yes, and then, you know, I, I remember one of my younger brothers was very upset in this family discussion because he's like, does, does that mean she's going to hell? And my parents are like, well, kind of. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man. Uh, which, from that, you know, that was sort of the beginning of me questioning a lot of, you know, what I had been brought up with. But then, you know, and I, I you know, have plenty of... Uh, gay and lesbian friends since then but it was a couple years ago where I had a guy that I've been friends with for a long time um, you know going on 25 years now who came out to me and it wasn't even like a huge thing it was just during a discussion he's like I don't know if you know this or not he's like I'm I'm gay and I was just like okay and you know during the conversation it was, I was like cool man whatever makes you happy but then like I remember actually struggling with it in my head for a couple of days, not, I had no problem with it, but it was the fact that I thought about in my life and my, my friends was, I was like all my gay and lesbian friends at that point, whenever I had met them, it was, they were already out and whatnot. So in my mind, I was like, oh, you know, this is, you know, this is, uh, Steve and he's gay. And you know, this is, uh, Jennifer, she's a lesbian, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is my buddy Rob now Rob's gay does that mean I need to put him in it and I was like no it doesn't change my relationship with Rob at all and it's weird to think about Mm -hmm. just five years later being you know I was like I was in my late 30s and having to have this conversation in my head and I was like first of all it doesn't have any effect on me whatsoever so it shouldn't be this thought process at all but I was like that's kind of fucked up that in my mind I didn't even realize it was compartmentalizing people in my life that way until you know, a perceived change in someone who was already in my life, which he, you know, he had been out and living his life uh, for years that way, but it just became apparent to me then. And I was like, okay, I need to adjust how I'm, you know, dealing with people. And I was like, huh, okay. So that was a, it was a great growing moment for me. And, and I think here's a cool thing in that in a fairly short amount of time, we have gone from a society that kind of like, you know, that that was unacceptable mm-hmm. you know like go back to the 50s or whatever and then you've got you get to a point where it becomes you know don't ask don't tell and then you get to a point where you know hey people that are you know gay are allowed to serve in the military and they're allowed to get married and we live in a culture now where it's like you know derogatory terms of that and we live in a city where it's like I don't you, you see people that are gay straight whatever walk around and you don't bat an eyelash if there's two guys two girls holding hands that might you know I have tons of friends you know my yeah. next door neighbors um uh, my uncle is gay and came out when I was, you know, 13, 14 years old. And yeah. I just remember being like, okay, that makes sense. I get it. And right. Whatever. Um, and, and so in that respect, we've made a ton of change in society because of that. I'd like to, I'd like to think, although I don't think we're making such great strides anymore, but racism in this country, you know, I would love to think at some point people would start realizing that, you know, 
we're all humans. Turn right. off turn off the lights. You can't tell what color anybody is, so stop being mm-hmm. judgmental because you have eyes. Right. Um, and uh, and and uh, and differentiate because of you know skin color kind of that just drives drives me nuts and then i think that you know with if you look at the opiate epidemic and the stuff that's going on and you think about the aids epidemic and how you know similar perception versus where things are now you know i mean because of aids we got to a point where i think we had to really look at society and and how we um understood and, and dealt with on a social level um you know, the gay population and then IV drug users at the time and needle exchanges and, you know, stuff like that were talked about. You know, the yeah. fact that it was talked about helped change it. And so if that's the kind of thing that's going to start helping to change that stigma and, and that whole thing, and then so be it. Because hopefully, you know, 10, 15 years down the road from out, we've flipped and we're like, hey, instead of incarceration, instead of, you know, traumatizing these people that are already traumatized by their addiction, you know, even more by kind of ostracizing them from society and, and shaming them and, and, and creating this stigma around it and everything like that. Like if we start going, all right, what's the best court? Like, like instead of throwing somebody in jail and saying, well, hopefully you've learned your lesson, you know. Right. Now, granted, if somebody does some crime that obviously is a result of their addiction, that's you right. know, murder or robbing a bank, you're like, okay, you have to address that. But if it's just the simple like, oh, you overdosed and you had heroin on you in, in your possession so that was a probation violation and right. now you're going back to jail it's like how about we go hey why don't we put you into treatment because I guarantee you that's a hell of a lot cheaper than putting them in incarceration right. which is doing nothing for them other than you know by the time they get out then they're right back where they're started and I don't know There's so you know I kind of hope to think that at some point in our progression as a, uh, a, a society and as the human race we'll look at things and kind of do what's better fundamentally I mean, we suck at that as humans. We're a warring, you know, we're... (laughs) Yeah. So there's not a lot of faith in the human race. However, you know, I hope that, you know, by long term, you know, 200 years after I'm dead. Right. When everybody is brown. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a... Yeah, it's a, it's a weird time to be living, but it'd be cool to think that, you know, we'll all grow up at some point and stop seeing everybody as the other and start realizing that, like, hey, the, the best thing that we can do is kind of help everybody along this. Right. It's a short time on this planet. Make the most of it, which is why in my mind I'm like, yeah, I want to play music and record albums because that's cool. I want to make movies because that's cool. I want to write a book because that'd be kind of cool because at some point I'll be like, oh, remember all those things I really wanted to do? I'm 75. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I can't, you know, do those things. Although when I'm 75, I hope to be surfing. It's a good aspiration. I am. Uh, I, I was talking. It was funny because the last night at work at the Trader Joe's, we were having a conversation about age. You know, as we're working, because it, it, the nice thing about working there is I work with a pretty good swath of age. You know, there's I work with some people who are 22, 23, and there's couple people in their 60s and 70s that I work with but because it was a guy that I work with who I assumed was five or six years older than me that I found out uh, was 14 years older than me you know he's you know almost almost 60 because um, we talk about music all the time but um, you know and along in this conversation talked about how like for me myself I only really in the last like six or seven years 
figured out like what I want to do, like what's important to me in my life, like what I want to focus on and what I want to sort of like not give energy to. And I'm like, man, to think if I had figured that out when I was 30 instead of 42, but you know, to, <laughs> <Tell me about laughs> it. you know, but you also have to go through what you need to go through to get to the person that you eventually become. Oh yeah. I mean, I laugh over the fact that I'm like, I still like, I think everybody has like a, you have your age and then how you perceive yourself. Age. Sure. So, I mean, like, I don't look, I don't act, and I certainly don't think of myself as my actual age. Mentally, I'm 14. Right. Like, I'm still this 14-year-old kid that's just kind of a dreamer and afraid of half the things in the world and kind of forcing myself to step out of my comfort zone right. sometimes. And You know what I mean? Like, But, you know, that's just me. I'm like, I, it's which is weird to say that out loud and then be like, and I have a 14-year-old son. Right. And I, but I, I see myself as kind of that awkward stage of life. And, sure. And I've held on to that since I can remember. Yeah. You know, in my mind, that's just where it's at. And, you know, I'm not going to, I mean, I think I primarily, you know, still wear T-shirts and hoodies. Right. And, and right. vans and uh, flip-flops. And it's, you know, I grew up in Miami and that was normal. And, and I live up here now and that's still my comfort right. level of, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And how I perceive myself and how I, I don't know, go out. But I mean, there's something to be said about, you know, just being your authentic self and, and being okay. Like, hey, guess what? I'm 40. I have to start over. Right. I have to really, like, embrace what it is that I think it is that I want to do and then, and then be okay with that. That was a, that was a, that was a, for me, the big thing was, uh, funny enough, was being okay with, like, being obsessed with action figures. I was like, you know, because I was a lot. I've never seen you with Chewbacca in the supermarket in Boise, Idaho. He's in, yeah, he's in my pocket right now. But uh, it's just, um, it was one of those things that, you know, because I've had a couple friends be like, huh, so this is a thing now. I was like, it's actually always been a thing. I was just not not comfortable enough with it. I'm just like, life's too short to do stuff that, you know, you don't love. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, well, it's something that, you know, made me happy when I was a kid. And, and, I was like, you know, I probably would have in my 20s and 30s, but I wasn't comfortable enough with with myself at that point. And now I'm just like, whatever. I mean, but look at it this way. Think about when we were kids and, you know, you read comic books, right? Comic yeah. books weren't really cool. Right. Now all of a sudden, everything in the movie theater is a comic book movie. Right. And, I, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a super talented comic book artist who, you know, and he's, and let me rephrase that. He's an amazing artist. Right. Let alone he does comic books and he and uh, he has a super successful comic book that he's you know makes a, a wonderful living out and he's passionate about and he gets to draw every every day he's won awards for and I and I think about how do you cool want to say his name or would you prefer not oh to? no his name's David Peterson yeah, yeah. he does uh, Mouse, Mouse Guard, Guard. Yeah, yeah. and uh, but I but I think sorry I was being elusive with that I mean, no 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 but I, okay. but I'm thinking about it from the fact that it's like. I think it's the, the the shame would be is if there was a time in his life where he was like, oh, my passion's comic books, but nobody's ever going to take me seriously, so I'm going to work out, work on just doing fine art, right? And watch him struggle and struggle and struggle for for decades and not make a living doing something that he loves, right? Whereas, you know, being the dude that's like, hey, I'm, I'm going to embrace what it is that I love, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be successful with it and doing that, and I'm not going to be considered a fine artist by the right. global scale but doing what I love and in my you know niche market of, of the, in the comic world you know I'm winning the Oscar right multiple times right. you know what I mean and, and going to comic cons all over the country and being you know heralded as a successful comic book artist yeah and, you know and a, and a potential movie deal coming up and, and, and all this stuff and, 
you know, so that stuff I look at and I go, that's awesome. Like that is my favorite thing in the world when I see people that I know doing what they love and being successful at it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So when you're like super successful with your art and not saying you're not now, but I mean like when all of a sudden you've got like gallery stuff right. in like San Francisco and selling for ridiculous amounts of money, I'm going to be like right on. You know what I mean? Like when you achieve that level of success, you know what I mean? Like I'm sure people laughed at Banksy. Right. You know what I mean? Like, oh, it's street artist, blah, 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 blah. Well, cool. It's, you know, you can shred your, you know, your, your paintings when they sell. Yeah. And, and uh, I thought that was such a gangster thing to do absolutely and I love the fact that it didn't shred all the way which it was supposed to actually shred right. all the way but I love it because if you're the guy that bought that you've now got like one of the most seminal pieces of cultural pop art ever like and you can hang it for the moment just though. like that right absolutely yeah. it's like I'm like that is really good cool. and the greatest thing in the world too is knowing that when that happened the price just went up right and, uh, and yeah. so the, the, that's just cool. And so, you know, I, I always love to hear those stories and friends that achieve them or people that I don't even know, but when they're like, you know, when you get to be passionate about whatever it is that you do and, uh, and, yeah. and, and be successful with it, I think it's great. You heard about, um, this happened a couple of years ago. You know about the, the Wu-Tang album that they did that they made one Yes, copy. and I hate the fact that the guy that bought it was that bag the the farm yeah. thing. But do you know you know about the clause that they had? Um, no. So there was a clause bef- like when they put it up for sale. So it's for those people who, who don't know what I'm talking about, the Wu Tang Clan recorded an album and which they literally made one copy of the entire album and then auctioned it off. I think he bought it for like nine million dollars or something like something, that. Yeah. But they and it was the person who owns it could do whatever they wanted with it after they owned it. You know, if they wanted to distribute it, which a lot of people thought maybe another famous you know musician would buy it and then distribute it for free. But this, I, I don't remember his name, but I also don't want to give him any credit. So no, it was that pharma dude that basically jacked the price of some generic pharmaceutical that he bought the rights to yeah. for. Or no, it wasn't generic. It was a proprietary pharmaceutical whatever thing it was for heart disease. He jacked up the price by like a thousand percent. Yeah. Um, but he owns it. But in the clause for in the sale now. was, yeah. Um, if any of the members of the Wu Tang Clan, and I love this, or Bill Murray, uh, yes, can successfully take it, like steal it from him. He's not. It, and it wasn't just for him because it was written generically before it was sold. If they can successfully steal it from whoever buys it, there could be no legal recourse. Like they can't, they can't like pursue them. You know. Uh, okay, please it. tell me because I don't know where the story is going. Because no, nothing's just been done about it. Please tell me that Bill Murray stole it. Because in I my mind, I have a wonderful visual of Bill Murray, like you know, doing the whole Tom Cruise, well, like think, being lowered down in like you know Mission Impossible I style. I think the reason they put Bill Murray in was. Did you ever see the Jim Jarmusch film uh, Coffee and Cigarettes? Yeah. Um, He's got that scene with the RZA and the Jizza, and mm-hmm. he, like Bill Murray became friends with the RZA after that, and like, and so they like bounce this idea off, and they're, they're like, "We're gonna put this clause in," but and he's like, "Can I be part of it?" And they're like, "Yep." So I was just like, "Perfect, like I just uh, and I want that album to get released. Yeah. You know what I mean? Just because I don't know, it should be. Yeah, it's a Wu-Tang. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I kind of like the story better, uh, having not heard, especially because I've heard their last few albums, and like they're not bad by any means, but they're not, you know, they're not the, the, the you know, enter the thirty six chambers or even woo forever. But, right. But yeah. 
the fact that they're still around doing what they do, right? I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah, I love the fact that we're in a time right now of crap music that isn't going to have uh, longevity at all, but yet there's still music out there and bands that have been together for 20, 25 years mm-hmm. that are still, you know, not like the Rolling Stones in that capacity, but they're right. still like relevant in my mind at least. It's like, weird like that. to me that <laughs> bands that were new and were like popular when we were growing up are now classic rock. And people are still listening to like the, the whole 90s music scene yeah. is like kind of having a resurgence. Mm-hmm. And then, then again, so is the 80s, but I'm going to ignore that. Yeah. But I think it's funny that, yeah, it's kind of classic rock, but it's also the fact that there is not that genre of music like really being done at that level anymore right you know and, you know i'm sorry i'm gonna bash post malone here for all you post malone <laughs> lovers but like i just don't get it i'm like man if it wasn't for auto-tune nobody would care like nobody would know that you could actually do anything like, right. it's just you know and so when you've got that element of people then like it just, just uh, i mean a, a macbook pro and just bad mumble rap right you know, I, uh, and this is coming from a guy like I love old school hip hop like I'll, I'll listen to Talib Kweli and most stuff all day every day yeah that was you know in common like that's some serious talent you know the Wu-Tang playing the Beastie Boys I just finished uh, the reason I was I texted you that I was going to be late was I was just recording a, another podcast earlier today for uh, do you know Todd Hunter yeah yeah so I was at Todd Hunter's house and we were doing a uh, for my movie podcast we do a or I do a sub series in it called For the Love of Mixtapes where I'll pick a different artist and uh, um, I was trying to think actually early because I was like maybe I could trick Mike into doing one of those I would if we totally do, do one of those right now I was trying to think of which artist because so basically I pick a, uh, I, I just go through my collection and bands that I'm super fanatical about and then I've like reached out to different friends and I'll be like who like that particular artist I'm like Let's do an episode of this where we each pick our five favorite songs by that artist, and we go back and forth talking about it. And but Todd and Hunter and I just did the Nine Inch Nails episode. Yes, so, I remember he was super related to get tickets to the show. Yeah, yeah, we <laughs> talked about that because uh, he waited in line for eight hours. Uh, I love the fact that I saw Nine Inch Nails like way back in the day, and I was yeah. like, "Who is this genius?" And I must see more. Now. Yeah, yeah, I was talking about seeing him at uh, Woodstock '94. Yep, um, which wasn't the first time I saw them, but no, I saw them before that. As a matter of fact, so I have a funny Nine Inch Nails story. Way back in the other lifetime ago when I worked for FCA Universal Geffen Records and all that, uh, a woman I worked with down in in Boston, uh, she went to college with Trent and was friends with him. Mm -hmm. And she sat there going... Probably back when he was still Michael. Yes. And one of the greater things was that she also goes, was telling me about his band at the time in college that she really liked. And she was like, oh, yeah, me and my roommate and like four of our friends, because we all had crushes on half the guys. um, You know, she was like, you know, we'd go see them play and, you know, to like 10, 12 people. And, uh, and the band was called No Hot Water because they lived in a place that had no hot water. Right. You know, whatever. But she's telling me these stories, and I just remember telling her at the time, and I'm not going to say that I'm right about this, but it's one of my favorite memories. And that, so I just sat there going, man, and he's so talented. I'm like, I can't wait for the day that he puts out, like, a classical piano album or, like, scores some movie soundtrack. Right. And then, like, we, you know, he does, you know, the whole thing with that because yeah. we're all, like, you know, just really award-winning. And I love that. I love the fact that a guy who, you know, you know, down in it came on and, and, and just, you know, everything on like TVT in the early days and, um, mm. you know, hit this point where he's like now literally socially acceptable, like Academy Award winning uh, artist, you know, performer that you can look at and be like, yeah, you and John Williams, 
right. you guys have won best motion picture, you know, score and stuff right. like that. And incidentally, also a dude that struggled with heroin. Right. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to tie it, it all circle. back in. Yeah. But, but going down the music thing, because now I'm going to ask you, because I've recently gone into this weird, like, because there hasn't been any music that I like any new music that's driving me nuts mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden I start like delving into stuff that I've always liked and then recently I've become re-obsessed with Jamie T do you know him at all? Mm-hmm. Jamie T? Jamie T J-A-M-I-E yep and then the letter T, T period huh. uh, it's a British guy uh, it's 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 hit all of his stuff I don't know I love it but essentially it's a dude that, that the, the greatest comparison is like picture a guy in London, who grew up listening to The Clash and the Beastie Boys. Mm. Mm. And then has gone on to do amazing, I don't know, they, everything that he does, I'm always like, oh, this is so good. So I'm going through a whole weird obsession with him. And because of my obsession with Rancid, it's how I discovered him, because mm. he did some songs with uh, Tim Armstrong. And mm. I was like, who's this Jamie T dude? And I started listening to him, I was like, oh my God. And then at one point, he has a song called Spider, Spider's Web. Um, Spiderweb that yeah I mean this is probably I think that album came out maybe ten nah, seven years ago or whatever that it's on and it was my song my fun, son's favorite song for like a year hmm. anybody out there familiar with like you know seven eight nine year old kids they right. find one thing that they love and it was like yeah. dad can we listen to that over and over and over and yet I still like the song but it always made me laugh I was like Nice. Right, cool. Now his music, his his taste has changed, and I can't really jump on board. But I try. Yeah, like, hey, let's check this out. Yeah. No, that's where my post Malone bashing comes from. <laughs> um, I'd say in the last couple of years, musically, the, the new thing that like has got me obsessed the most, and I got to give credit to my friend Tina for turning me on to her is this Australian singer named Amy Sharp. Uh, you turned me on to her, and then I'm still obsessed with her, and then. Another, and I don't know if she's Australian, but have you heard Lisa Mitchell? Yes. Yes. She's great. She does a great cover of a Jamie T song on, uh, uh, what's that show? The Australian show, Like a Virgin? Or no, Like a Version? Like a Version, yeah. So she does a cover of his song, Zombie. Nice. That is done as a bossa nova, similar to um, a Girl from Ipanema. Right, right. That literally, I'm obsessed with them. Hmm. Check that out. Oh, yes. Did we talk about Amy Shark on the last podcast? No, but you told me about her, I think, at some Just point or after it, and yeah. I was like, <gasps> and I did. I like went and then I downloaded everything she did, and I yeah. was like, she's amazing. How is this not the greatest album I'm ever? not as impressed with the, the full length as I was the EP. I like it, but the, the EP was just like, oh, my God. Together. Well, because the EP, every song was great. Right. The album came out, and it was every other song plus right. one. right. Yeah, but it was still really. I like her voice. Oh yeah, she's got a great voice, and I also they, there's some interesting production on the EP that uh, you know I feel like there was more chances taken on the production of that where I felt like because it was also done independently, and then a label bought it where for full length she was signed to the label, and they're like, all right, let's make a grown up record now, and then yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I just felt like they reeled her in a little bit too much but you know we'll see I don't know hopefully her next one will come out and it'll be but then again she's still as as great as the EP was and the album is still really awesome it just means like that the, there's something to come that's probably sure. great I mean her writing partner you know and the guy that she collaborated with I think on the EP you know maybe when you realize you kind of had that magic and you go okay cool let's bring that back and we'll do it but yeah 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 there hasn't been 
there's not a ton of music right now that's like although this morning I discovered that Super Chunk is still a band and they're putting out relevant albums and yeah that's you were showing me that right before we started recording I um made me happy I'm trying to think if there's anything else musically Ooh. that I had a thought recently because I went through a whole do our political landscape. I was like, you know what? Rage Against the Machine really needs to put out an album right now that really embraces a, a revolution. Right. <laughs> and because I need that. So I went through a rage kick. So for like two months straight, all I did was listen to Rage Against the Machine, and, uh, which made me happy. Just, but it, you know what I mean? Just yeah. like we need that. I just read a, um, uh, a I guess it's an essay from Tom Morello this morning because I. Uh, He's well, a genius. Well, I bought the um, the Chris Cornell box set that came out a couple of weeks ago, and so there's you know Kim File and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden both wrote essays, and then Mike McCready from Pearl Jam, also Temple of the Dog wrote something, and then Tom Morello wrote something about Chris Cornell, and uh, he was talking about you know the power that Rage Against the Machine had, and once that ended, he and you know Brad Wilk and Tom Comerford wanted to still make music that was as in your face so that's how they did Audio Slave I mean and I liked Audio Slave but it doesn't have the power it wasn't Rage Against the Machine you, you needed know? Zach in that band right. to just have I just do I want them to reunite like that is a band that needs to reunite and put out something that's just like yeah you know that just that, that I don't jumps think, on I don't think it's gonna happen I mean I would, oh. I would like that as well but it's not gonna happen but I want it to maybe you know I mean I don't know Guns N' Roses got back together sadly enough whatever but um it's an awful comparison. On that tour, but I, everyone I know who saw Guns N' Roses on the last tour was like, "Oh, this is fantastic!" Wow. So, see, I look at it this way: like, again, like I was fortunate enough to see Rage at a very early, right. you know, part in their career, and talk about a religious experience, man. Yeah. There, there was a moment where, like, like, like they, I think it might have been their encore, so it had already been an awesome show, and then like everybody goes off stage and you know, everybody clapping, and so the encore starts and you know it's almost like in the dark like no lights on stage and it's this very like kind of jazzy kind of like interlude kind of thing mm. just very soft and kind of spoken wordy and then you know the lights come up a little bit and you see the band on stage but Zach isn't on stage at all and then you start hearing him kind of like reading poetry and, it, and it, it, it's this really slow build that was probably seven, eight, nine, ten minutes long and it, and it just becomes a slow build and then he comes walking out on stage with a book of poetry in his hand and he's just reading from it and then as it it just escalates and escalates like most Rage Against Machine songs do yeah. to the point where he's jumping up and down and screaming the entire audience I think at that point would have been like you want us to start a revolution now in a coup attempt to take over the government sure why not yeah. I just remember being in you know it's like 2000 seat venue and I just remember being like this is a religious experience. This yeah. is like, this is a live show of, of like, I'm witnessing yeah. some actual social change happening right yeah. now. And it was cool. I remember I saw, first time I saw them was on Lollapalooza 93. Cause, uh, cause Tool was playing that too. It was the first time. I remember Tool. that. Cause, cause Maynard came out and did Know Your Enemy with Rage Against the Machine, but it was yes. also, Brad Will played the entire show with his back to the audience. Like, his kid was turned around. Yes, that, yeah. you remember that. That was one of my favorite. And I tried to remember, I tried to explain to people, like, what that was like, because he had a mirror. Did you yeah. catch the mirror that he yeah. had? And I was like, that was one of the coolest things in the world, because you just had a mirror and he played, but his back was to the audience. And I was like, that? Yeah. Pretty awesome. Do you know why he did No. Was he had stage fright? He had intense stage fright, and that was the only way he could get through their early shows. And finally, like, after playing like 200 shows um, Tim was like dude 
you need to, you need to get over it. Well, what's funny is after that, he went from playing backwards to sideways. Right. Yeah, I remember that too. Yeah. On the, I stole um, that from him for a very long nice. time. He used to set up sideways. Tour. I was like, oh, this is more fun. I can see better. <laughs> it was funny. I remember seeing Tool, um, you know, probably on the, it must have been the Autumn Tour where they started doing it, where Danny Carey is down at the front of the stage instead of in the back where people usually put the door and then Maynard would be in the back yeah um, and then you know so the front line was drums guitar bass and then the singers in the back I was like oh okay. let's just mess with or I always love that about the roots they used to set up in a circle mm-hmm. facing each other yeah I was just like that's yeah. awesome yeah I mean I I think my first memory of seeing a band that was not in the traditional presentation was I saw so this was in Fitchburg Mass and it was in a it was a hockey arena so it was Sausage which is you know uh, uh, Les Claypool side yeah. project I mean it, it was the original incarnation of Primus, Primus the three players from Primus but the other two guys didn't play on Primus records until later um it was it was sausage helmet and the Rollins band, um, such a such a strange but it was a great show. But no, but that's a great show. When helmet played, so you know they had John Stanier, the drummer in the back, and then uh, the two guitar players were on either side. And, so, and Paige Hamilton, the vocalist, is one of the guitar players as well. So he was all the way to stage left, and then Henry Bogdan, the bass player, was in the center. And it was very weird because whenever he'd sing, your attention goes to yeah. stage left. And I was like, "What? Can they? Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> are you Some allowed to? The band can do whatever they want." But it was Generally. just—it was strange to me to see that. But I was like, "Oh, I guess you can set up however you want to set up." Totally. Yeah. And I always, yeah, I, it's, it's funny that you bring up that. Because I, uh, one of my old bandmates and, and roommates, Jack, was a huge fan of Helmet. Still is to this day. Yeah. Like, the guitar playing in that band is just like yeah. so on point. And so, uh, but I remember that was my introduction to Helmet. And then um, Rollins' band, like back, yeah, Henry Rollins' band, what a genius! I mean, just I, I love his story of working at Baskin and Robbins, and then like you know the whole showering and like, triple sync, and, yeah, yeah, and just and just like going from that to like, hey, I'm on the road with Black Flag, like mm-hmm. I'm going to be their new singer, yep. to to then going with the Rollins band and spoken word stuff, yep. his solo career, and saw him at Woodstock and various yep. other, saw him at UNH on like a basketball court with the Beastie Boys and the Rollins band. Sounds right. Yeah. I, like the shows that you like look back on, you're like, I'm so fortunate I got to yeah. see that, or like, you know, Sublime before freaking Brad died. Right. Um, another heroin overdose, just right. Which was just another thing. I'm back. just gonna bring it all back, yeah. you know how. But I always think it's funny. Like as I was coming up with the idea to do that film, started realizing as a musician, like how many bands that I grew up loving and listening to, that it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's a it's an issue in that band. God, I mean, uh, I mean. Two of my favorite bands growing up. I mean, still two of my favorite bands today. But you know, formative years. You know, both uh, Alice in Chains and Blind Melon. You know, I mean, I mean, Chandler yeah. was technically cocaine and heroin that killed him. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, and same thing with Lane Staley. Um, well, and because I think half that band died of heroin overdoses. Alice in Chains. Yeah. Yeah, because um, Mike Starr died. Um, he, and he had been on Dr. Drew's sober house as well. 
he had oh, been wow. kicked, he had been kicked out of the band, but yeah, and he because when he was on that show, because he was the last person who've seen Lane Staley alive, and he was just like, uh, yeah, I went over to his house because I was trying to score. Mm. Um, yeah, and unfortunately he, he passed yeah. as well. And they were a great. I mean, talk about yeah, you go to formative years bands and stuff like that. And I, you know, whether it, you know Red Hot Chili Peppers. You know, and and then you can jump into the jazz world and be like, oh, okay, you know, like Miles Davis and John Coltrane and, right. and Ray Charles, and you know, you can, I mean, you can go into every kind of, you know, the Ramones, and I mean, and now you've got, like I said, you know, you bring it up to today, and you get Matt Miller, Mac Miller, and and, and everybody else, and you know, currently, and you know, we just lost Prince, and we just lost Tom Petty, and yeah, you know, it's it's just weird when you start thinking about all of those things like every Jane's Addiction man a band that changed my life when I was 14 years old mm-hmm. made me want to be a drummer in a band I was like I want to be a drummer in a rock band because Stephen Perkins is unlike anybody I've ever heard before in my life you know what I mean and then I discovered you know Alice and Jane's uh, shortly thereafter that and I was listening to the Chili Peppers and you know you know Boss Hillel Slovak and then you know I, I mean, just the cascade of like you know and if you're a metalhead there's Nikki Six. <laughs> you know what I mean like and uh, you know all that it's just, I don't know, you kind of look at it and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Pretty pervasive in society. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Uh, well. Have we hit the end of our of our journey here? We both finished our coffee. You did, you're, you've still got I still plenty a of your bit. mug. Or, or My muffin? Your, uh, your muffin. Well, yeah, I hit I a point so... where I couldn't eat anymore because I felt like, well, now I'm that guy chewing and like... See, I, 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 I didn't let that slow me down. I ate my Turkish breakfast sandwich, which I had never had before, but it was a delight. I bet it was. It was a... Uh, here in Turkey. Turkey. Oh yeah, here in Turkey. Yeah. Oh yes, in, in Istanbul, uh, not Constantinople. Right. Or if anybody maybe. gets that reference, then we'll... I um. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Years ago, when I was doing a short-lived musical project when I had first moved back, and we were, you know, you have a couple practices under your belt, and you're like, okay, I think this is becoming a band. You, you got to come up with a name. <laughs> One of my favorites, which nobody else liked, uh, I was like, "What about?" Then again, they might not be giants. <laughs> which is a great name if there wasn't a band called They Might Be Giants. Right. Right. You know. But uh, yeah, I always loved that too. I remember like one of the last bands I played in and recorded a couple of like EPs. But it was always funny because it was it was it was that thing where you're like. Well, let's write some song. Like I got some ideas for, so we'll write some songs. We'll right. start practicing a little bit. You do like three or four practices, and you feel like you got all the songs down. You're like, cool. Let's record an EP, and then we'll like play a bunch of shows. And right. uh, you know, and then you record an EP, or and then you like you're like, oh, we're gonna book some shows. And we're like, oh crap, we should probably rehearse some stuff. And yeah, that always, I don't know, it's always fun. So this is a, <laughs> this is a game that I like to play Ooh. with people constantly. Is there a Oh, yeah, are you invested in no, this no, game? No, 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 no. I just you said ooh, and I'm like ooh, um, game. Um, what's your what's your favorite band name of all time? It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to oh, be your favorite band. Not a favorite a band, band at all no. by any mean and I means, but I will always say that I remember the first time I ever heard the name of the band Gas Huffer. I was like, that's, that's a pretty good. That's one. a pretty good. Now granted, yeah. they sucked. Right. As a band, sorry right. if there's any Gas Huffer fans out there, but I was just like, I remember hearing that and being like, that is. Like right then and there, you know you're in for a treat. Maybe yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know, man. Like there's just certain bands that like every once in a while you hear a band name and you're yeah, like, like oh, that's I got a great, that's, that's a, great, a great name. I mean, I was in uh, Fort Myers, Florida. I was working at Best Buy. I was working for Best Buy. We were building a new Best Buy there, and I was uh, 
you know, we were there for a week, and I had about a four-block walk between our hotel and the the Best Buy that we worked at. And, I mean, I could have driven, but I walked most days because it was a cafe, and one of the restaurants, there was a little bar that passed, and second to last night we were there, there was a band playing that had the little A-frame sign in front of the door, and it said, playing tonight, Cocaine Werewolf. And I was like, I have to see... You have to go see that band. I have to see that. And unfortunately, they didn't live up to that. No, they they, it was just generic, you know, blues rock. But I was like, you don't deserve this no, name. No. I did want to buy one of their shirts, but I think medium was the largest size that they had. Yeah, and I don't know. I think you would have regretted that purchase. Sure. Yeah, you would have been like, this isn't even good. I mean, I will say, too, probably the one band that does live up to their band name, Rage Against the Machine. That's a pretty good one. It is a great well, band name. I was mad at the time because, not and not at them, at the other band, there was another band that released, because Rage Against the Machine put out their self-titled debut in 1993. Uh, about three months afterwards, there was another band uh, called Damn the Machine. And I was like, you need to pick you another name. You have to name. change because that band is already better than you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and a different type of music too, but it was featured three ex-members of Megadeth at the time and it was I mean it's that sort of band and uh, uh, a great album cover by the way it was like a shot of the desert with these enormous cigarettes that had been put out in the you know it was a, you know, it was a photoshop thing but it was you know like three cigarettes put out in the ashtray of the Sahara but I was like you you can't do that and then there was so you're familiar with Drag the River, right? The yes. Country, yep. you know, which is good, good band, great, great band name. But then there was this folk-influenced band called Dry the River that came out years later. And whenever I would, stuff would pop up on Facebook from them, I would comment. I'm like, change your name. There's a better band with a name that's basically that's very similar. Yeah, oh, like, yeah. We've never heard of them. I'm like, I don't care change your name change your name I will say there's something really cool and this always I always go back to this in my mind I'm like you know loving punk rock and I love the fact that like as, as punk bands get older they become all country bands or mm -hmm. members that are in punk bands like they're like oh right. let's, let's just do a little bit of acoustic punk rock right. with some kind of you know hence one of the reasons why I always love Rancid because it's like Tim Armstrong does stuff and I'm like you just you're just doing all country now and it's awesome right you're, you're doing outlaw country and it's great right you know what I mean uh, there was a great Rolling Stone quote like a few years ago one of their albums came out and they had released the album alongside of it uh, with the acoustic version of the album I can't even remember which album it was but uh, Rolling Stone was like and the best country album comes out this year and it's uh, Rancid's acoustic version of yeah for the life of me I can't remember the name of the interesting album. but it was great and it was it was really cool it was a great country record like you listen to it you're like yeah, this is country I definitely haven't heard that, oh, it's, that so, it's a I can look on my phone and tell you what album it is um, yeah and then Tim Armstrong and his genius you know released one song a day for 360 days yeah I remember you telling me about that too <sighs> Yeah, that's a great, it's just such a, I love the fact that, you know, the dudes won Grammys for writing songs for Pink. Right. Written songs for, like, Gwen Stefani. You right. Know, written songs for um, Jimmy Cliff, won a Grammy for that, you know. So he's a punk rock legend who's written, you know, pop, you know, and then gotten Grammys for pop songs and, right. and reggae songs. Right. You know, I love that. Why not? Why not, man? You've got Gretsch guitar, you got a Fender guitar. Like the Godfather of punk rock, yeah. got a pretty cool it. record label. Like, why not? <laughs> I, just, I always think that's great. <laughs> what haven't we covered yet? <sighs> French cheeses. Which ones to avoid? <sighs> All. 
the real runny ones. Just it's, yeah, they're usually real pungent and uh, they make a mess. Yeah, I'm not, just not a fan. No. I had a really good feta in my sandwich. Hey, well, it's, it's really a Turkish. Cool. Yeah, yeah. it's great. It was just tomatoes, green peppers, and feta cheese. They're really cool. I don't, can't go wrong. You can't. It's kind of delight. It's a Mediterranean Turkish delight. Yeah. Although Turkey's not in the Mediterranean, so I should probably strike that from the. <laughs> um, on that note, mm. um, yeah. yeah. Until until next time. Yeah. Well, the next time we have to, uh, you're gonna have to make me. We're gonna have to do some uh, mixtape. Okay. And movie. Oh, hold on. I'm gonna make this keep going. Okay. Because I saw Creed two last night. Have you seen it? I no. Although this is the second podcast I've recorded today, where I was asked if I had seen Creed two. Have yeah. you seen Creed one or Rocky seven? <laughs> uh, no, I stopped Rocky four, and it's not out of any like I don't want to see it but it, it, when Creed came out it was I like Michael B. Jordan and I was like like I didn't immediately know that it was a continuation of the Rocky series yeah. but I Rocky 4 was the last one I'd seen and I was like I don't want to do the homework and see all the ones leading up to it you don't need to that, that's what I've heard as well but I definitely feel like I need to see Creed before I see Creed 2 you do and what's perfect about it is that you should watch Creed because it's a great movie and Michael B. Jordan is awesome one of my favorite actors. Mm-hmm. My son's favorite actor, ironically enough. Uh, and uh, go watch Creed 1 because it's great. And then Creed 2, I really enjoyed. Very good movie. And it, it kind of lines up that the last Rocky movie that you saw was Rocky 4. Well, yeah, because I know that, um, you know... It's, it's, Ivan Drago's yeah, son, Victor. Drago's yes. son. And, but it, Dolph Lundgren's in it, right? Yeah, and okay. talk about another genius. Yeah, a lot of MIT people don't know that. has his PhD yeah, from MIT. He's like a... <laughs> biophysicist I think something like that yeah yeah like because you know people know him you know from the action movies he did in the 80s and stuff like that but the guy's literally a genius no he he is and he was before he did those movies right right. like I think he was getting his PhD at MIT when he started his acting career which I think is hysterical yeah Again, Rage Against the Machine. Uh, what's his name there? Who went to Harvard? Guitar player. Why am I drawing a blank? Tom Rowe. Thank you, Tom Rowe. Yeah. Do you know he went to Harvard? Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, with, with Helmet, Paige Hamilton. Uh, Another genius. Got, got his degree in jazz guitar at Berkeley. Yeah. Yeah. And what's his name? The singer from... Uh, oh, man. Part of that post... Or that pop-punk wave of bands that gotta keep them separated what was that band oh uh, De- Dexter Holland from the Offspring yeah, yeah. he's uh, something to do he, he just got his PhD I was really reading about well. it but he just got his PhD yeah. in like molecular biology right well and Greg Graffin from Bad Religion is a professor yeah, yeah. I love that yeah although I was gonna say when you were talking about <laughs> the punk rock bands making you know, country records. I'm like, or you could be Bad Religion and do an unironic Christmas album a couple Christmases ago. Yes. I was like, what? Especially, <laughs> your band is called Bad Religion. Religion. <laughs> your, pretty much your entire 30-year career has been about how, you know, dismissing what religion teaches us. And then you did a bunch of religious Christmas songs unironically. Yes. I was like, huh. What? What the? And it's not like you get pressure from the label. You no, you own, own the label. You are your label. You own your label. I was like, what? Maybe someone in the band was like, hey, my mom wants us to make a record she can listen to. It's the only thing I can think of. You, or they might have just sat around and going, you know what would be really funny? All right. 
but they're not even like jokey versions. That's no, no, no. They're very like, like straight legit. Like, like, yeah, yeah, we're doing Christmas songs. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Billy Idol has two Christmas albums, so who knows? He does. Yeah, Christmas. That just, that just disturbed me a little bit. It's from my years working at Best Buy and working in the music department. It was always interesting to me the like two months that we carried this whole set of albums that like people forget about for 10 months out of the year because you can't find Christmas albums in like June I mean you could go online and order one but I'm like there's just warehouses of you know this is back when people still bought CDs all the time I'm like there's just warehouses where this Christmas music just sits for most of the year Mm -hmm. it's insane and also thinking about when because every year there'd be new Christmas albums you know a whole slew of them out and like that means in March Mariah Carey recorded a bunch of Christmas songs to get just oh, ready for this Christmas season. Like, yeah. it's such a weird niche market, but it's not niche. It makes, makes so much money. money. Well, Brian Setzler. Best Christmas album I've ever heard. Oof. Honestly. I, I believe you because that you believe that. Absolutely, like, man. I, I, I cannot. Uh, I, 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 but I say it because it's kind of like, it's just, you know. Cool. He fully commits to that presentation. I just the Brian Setzer Orchestra is one of my least favorite musical things on the planet. Really, I love it because he's so damn talented, and big band stuff is just fun. I will agree with the first part of that statement. But it's fun, and I and when I say this too, it's fun to play. See, that's why I, I don't have that <laughs> firsthand experience because you know I'm I'm not really a musician. I always think that there's funny things like when you, when I, there's music that. Like the music that I play was always very different than the music that I listen to mm. because I think the music that I listen to is just more fun for me to listen to whereas a lot of the music that I played was more fun for me to play sure. you know like hey I'm going to play avant-garde jazz why because it's super challenging it's a lot of fun I get to beat the crap out of my drums and I have to think right I love punk rock ask me to be a drummer in a punk band I'd probably suck at it right I'd be like oh, again okay. let me do this really four, fast four cool yeah. here it is yeah, yeah can't do it it's mm. interesting but I don't know Okay, wait, I'm just going to make you end on uh, Best Christmas because we're into that season and I'm right. going with Brian Setzler or the Beach Boys, Best Christmas Albums for me. How about you? I like Willie Nelson, Pretty Paper. Ooh, good reggae album. When you did Countryman? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, Pretty Paper. Not, <laughs> Sorry. Not a traditionally I considered love- reggae, but yeah, no, his, uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, his reggae album was good. He's one of the people that, because I've seen Lee Nelson live more than any other artist. I've only seen him once and I was blown away. He's seen him 14 times. Oh, God. Uh, amazing show every time. And the fact that, like, He's a jazz guitar player. Mm-hmm. I don't know He's if people. I don't think people know that. Like you watch like the chords that he plays. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. He plays jazz chords the whole time on mm-hmm. that old beat up trigger guitar. He's one of the most underrated living guitarists in the world. Oh, because because he's Willie yeah. Nelson. People focus on the whole thing, which is great. But if you watch him play guitar, he's yeah. phenomenal, and he's got a. Um, uh, do you know the album Spirit? Um, it's almost completely acoustic, and there's a lot of instrumental songs on there. And he's the only guitar player on that record. Um, yeah. It's phenomenal. It's got a it's it, it's got a sepia tone cover of him wearing like a faded 
Um, I know what you're talking about. Yes, such a phenomenal record. But he, I remember seeing him. I won tickets to go see him live, and literally, I was like, "All right." See him at the casino ballroom? No, I saw him at uh, uh, UNH at like whatever the arena is. That, and I just remember, like, I won him on WHEB. Like, I called him. I was like, "Hey, Greg, are you there? Any tickets left?" He's like, "Yeah, you want to go? Sure." I'm like, "All right, yeah. awesome." And uh, I went to go see Willie Nelson, and with you know with the whole thing I'm like I'm just gonna go see a legend and that's really cool because how many more opportunities right like I saw the temptations in the same capacity I was like alright man I wanna see the temptations saw Willie Nelson and I sat there going I know like four Willie Nelson songs hour and a half show I knew every song right I'm like oh okay apparently I'm a bigger Willie Nelson fan than right. I'm gonna let on and then two I just remember watching him play going this dude is for real like hands down one of the better guitar players I've ever seen play in my yeah. life yeah, yeah. And I, I love that he like literally wore a hole through his guitar from playing it for fifty plus years. The same guitar. Yeah, I like on his albums now, uh, and the credits for like who performs in the album. It just says Willie Nelson vocals, comma trigger. It doesn't yeah. say acoustic guitar. No, it's, it's like. I'm going to go out on a limb here and be like, if there is some kind of sell your soul to the devil kind of thing, that's yep. the only guitar that he's allowed to play. Could be. And, and that's his whole thing. And so yeah. once that guitar is gone, he's done. Yeah. I don't know. You might have just thrown a hex on Willie Nelson. I don't want to, but I just want to feel, feel like, you know what, if you want to go with those, like, you know, the blues crossroads and like whatever, right. I'm like, there it is, like Willie Nelson. So it's just a storyline to a bad documentary film I'm never going to direct. I have a weird <laughs> I have a weird feeling that he's going to be the last of the Highwaymen alive. Not that I'm trying to put any sort of curse on Chris Christopherson, but... He's the only other one that's alive. But And he's, I think he's probably maybe six or seven years younger than Willie Nelson but who knows Willie's gonna live forever well then again what was not not even just the Highwaymen but what was the other thing that Willie Nelson was involved in wasn't he in the thing with Tom Petty and no he wasn't he wasn't in the Tom Petty he he, He should have been he co-founded Farm Aid with uh, uh, Neil Young and John Mellencamp I did read a quote fairly recently that and you might have seen this but uh, he's talking about climate change and he, he said you know this generation really needs to think long and hard about what kind of planet they want to leave for me and Keith Richards. <laughs> I was like, that's I mean, pretty great. He says that. That, that reminds me of the, uh, yeah. That's just, those, they, they're going to be around forever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was weird. So, you know, and this will really be the, the end up, but, you know, so Stanley died recently. And, yeah. um, a lot of people I know were like really upset about it and I was like the dude had a good run and he was 95 I'm like am I sad that he's gone not really I mean I'm not I'm not glad that he's gone but I'm like the dude was 95 like my entire life he was within the realm of oh yeah Stanley you know he could have died 30 years ago if anybody makes it to 95 God bless him if anybody makes it to 95 and had the run that he had Right. I think the only thing that's really sad about Stanley to me is that as much credit as he had for all the characters that he created, mm-hmm. he didn't really gain as much financially as he should have, in my opinion. Sure. I do love the fact that he played cameos in all of the Marvel films. Yeah. I think that's wonderful. I think people don't understand that the first cameo he did as himself, as the creator of all these amazing comic book characters, was in Rats. Small Rats. With you know, mm-hmm. with uh, former skateboard legend, and then my name is Earl uh, Jason Lee. Jason Lee, who's one of my favorite actors, and 
in the fact that, you know, and that was probably Jason Lee's, like, first actual, like, acting role. Oh, it was, it was I, I absolutely. It, well, I, I think it was. He was in a Sonic Youth video. He was in the, the oh. cool thing. No, not cool thing. Uh, 100%. Video. Is he really? Yep. So that was his. But he was a skater in that. So he was basically playing himself, right? Where? Yeah. And then you know to be followed, you know, by Mallrats, and then doing Chasing Amy, and playing the amazing character of Banky. Where right. again, I will say that that is probably one of the greatest acting moments in my opinion ever. Of won an Independent Spirit Award for it. Freaking love that film. Yeah. But I loved his acting in it. I was mm-hmm. like, if I ever get the chance to work with him, I'm going to be super excited. <laughs> be like, dude, I just need you to play like this guy this one character I'll write just for you please <laughs> so Jay, Jason Lee if you're listening contact Mike where, where can he contact him just you know I don't know it's, uh, not Instagram because I'm never on there how about Facebook and or Twitter works but there's there's very few people that I'm like that I'd like love to work with or meet right. and I always think it's weird like Jason Lee one of them as far as actors Tim Armstrong as far as musicians right. and stuff like that um, yeah and then and then Dax Shepard who I think is just extremely talented and super funny like I love I love the fact that he's gone from like this dude that started his career on uh, Punked right and like that broke for him and then now he's what married to the chick that was uh, Veronica Mars Veronica Mars and then he's also the voice of Frozen I still have also eh, you know but then but then to go on beyond that and be like you know he's on great shows and did some cool movies and then now he's got a great podcast right. and you know kind of reinventing himself and I'm like that's kind of cool yeah. like that's a cool trajectory sure. that you had man like right on yeah. and hopefully like more movies will come yeah I say that hoping that I can somehow convince him like 10 years from now like okay seriously let's make a movie, let's make a movie. me you and Jason Lee absolutely I will write the score that would be a dream come true <laughs> like let's be honest that could be a horror movie right there right I'd even act in that there you go <laughs> <laughs> Alright, you heard it here, folks. Uh, there it is. Stay tuned in uh, 2028 for uh, Michael Venn. There you go. <laughs> Jason Lee and uh, Dak Shepard in, uh, you know. Tim Armstrong doing a Tim score. Armstrong Christmas <laughs> horror movie. A Christmas horror film. <laughs> I like that's not where I would go with it, but why not? You never, you never do. <laughs> Alright, man. Cool. Hey, uh, thank you. Pleasure as always. Mm-hmm. Thank you.